In this episode, we speak with Jay Ho, founding general partner at TCV. Founded in 1995, TCV has built a track record of partnering with private and public technology companies that have developed into global category-defining players. The firm has invested over $17 billion in more than 350 technology companies worldwide and has supported over 145 IPOs and strategic acquisitions, making it one of the most active technology investors. Select investments include Airbnb, Salonis, Clio, Cradlepoint, ExactTarget, Expedia, Facebook, Fandango, GoDaddy, GoFundMe, HomeAway, Netflix, Nubank, Revolut, Splunk, Spotify, Toast, Twilio, and Zillow, among many others. Jay has been a venture capitalist and technology investor for 40 years. Prior to TCV, he was a managing director at Chancellor Capital Management, where he spent more than a dozen years as a technology-focused venture capitalist and fund manager. Jay is currently on the board of directors of Netflix, Peloton, TripAdvisor, and Zillow. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. If you like the episode, click to subscribe. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Jay, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a delight to be with you. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here as well. Where I thought I'd kick off is since TCV is well known and it has a reputation of being really a top-notch tech investor, you know, over the past decades. Where I thought I'd start off is if you could tell us about an investment or two that you think best showcases TCV's skill set at investing. Certainly, we've had some very good ones and we've had some not so very good ones but the one that always comes to mind but you know at some point becomes ancient history is our investment in Netflix and part of the reason that comes to mind is that what we're really trying to do is invest at the growth stage in a visionary CEO who can build something very special and then be involved very active in any and every way we can in helping the company grow and build an enduring franchise as so a very much a long-term orientation. So you know, Netflix is certainly one of those that it was a bit of a roller coaster ride. It wasn't always quite so obvious, but I think one of the things as an investment organization you can prove your mettle during tougher times. It's easier when everybody's applauding. And so that's one that sticks out. More recent vintage, uh, similarly Spotify, leveraging a lot of the same trends where My partner Woody Marshall has been on the board and and active for over a decade now. And then there's a whole bunch of new franchises being built, particularly actually in Europe, companies like Revolut and Relax where my colleagues there are very active. Uh, and we hope that not only these companies grow into major major category defining companies, but that we can be a shareholder for a very long period of time. Mhm. And were there some kind of telling characteristics in those entrepreneurs that made you think like okay we don't know which way this could go but we believe wholeheartedly that this entrepreneur is going to succeed yes although it is quite honestly much easier to judge in hindsight than with foresight but the great entrepreneurs are really playing for a big prize I, you know i would add rich barton from 
his Expedia days and his Zillow days as well to the prior list. You know, they're playing a very big game. They tend to have a vision that others don't see initially. They tend to be able to attract phenomenal talent. And, you know, phenomenal talent is dramatically more impactful than good talent. They're willing to, by being so long-term, they're willing to kind of buck conventional wisdom and make forward investments when others might want to pair back their efforts. You know, I'd actually add Brian Chesky to that at Airbnb. It's just, you know, the thought of strangers sleeping on someone's couch as a business model seemed a little odd, but he's built an enormous business and survived a lot of bumps in the road. So, you know, when you step back, I guess it is great visionary, although there are a lot of visionaries who can't execute. Great hirer of talent. And then a fervent belief that the mountaintop that they're looking to capture is very high and uh, they're willing to do anything to get to the top and, and, and incur lots of obstacles. And and now when you're starting off the relationship with these entrepreneurs yeah. and you're getting to know the business more as time goes on, how do you decide kind of what role you want to play or do you play the same role with every investment you make? It might vary. Our sort of design goal is to be the largest minority shareholder, kind of close strategic partner with the CEO. And so when I say minority, is that we're not typically a controlling shareholder, nor are we an insignificant shareholder. The goal would be to be the largest outside investor. But sometimes these, you know, the founder, particularly in a bootstrap business, can own a lot of the business. You know, there's a two-way relationship building process that happens where we're trying to assess, is this the founder that we want to back? And the founder is typically trying to assess, are we the people he wants him or her back their company? And the reason we want to be a significant position of influence is because we really want to be that strategic partner to the CEO. Uh, it might be strategy discussions where we're a sounding board and able to leverage our long experience. It might be that, you know, the C-suite, we need to, typically when we're investing, it's not like there's a, the entire management team that's going to be there for the next 20 years. You know, certain teams can take a company to 50 million different team, maybe to 200 million, different team to 500 million, et cetera. And so we're very active through our network as a recruiter for a lot of our companies, again, working with the CEO, obviously all sorts of financing input across our venture partner network and our portfolio companies. We're really trying to share, I hate the word best practices, but it conveys the point. You know, what company X is doing in marketing may be applied over to company Z. And the same is true from a product development standpoint, et cetera, et cetera. So these are people we're forming very close relationships with. And, and sometimes it can be of help to always in a professional way, you know, test some of the assumptions that people are pursuing. Because I like to say in really good times, you might want to raise a few questions around what could go wrong. I did a podcast a while ago where I said, the world of free capital may persist forever, but if you're an entrepreneur, you might want to consider are you adequately capitalized because the cost of capital might go up? I made those comments in 2021, and that proved to be the case. I'd like to talk about TCV because, as I mentioned earlier, it is a brand name that's well-known, well-respected in tech investing. What do you think it is that's enabled you to grow the institution, grow the firm, and still be kind of considered at the top of it? Are there insights on how you've been able to hire the team and how you spot other good investors? I will start by saying, as you referenced, and we started in 1995, 
as the internet was getting commercialized. And we've certainly benefited. You know, part of the business, hopefully, is hiring great people and executing well. But sometimes in the world, you get lucky as well. So we've had tailwinds from the internet and then you know, mobile and the SaaS wave and now the AI wave. So very fertile investment ground, obviously, as a technology investor. That's a, you know, maybe obvious, but it's important to point out. And you know, maybe one of the key skill sets is just being stubbornly persistent. Because if you think about, while that was a very positive tailwind for us, the markets have gone through a lot of different cycles from the internet boom and bust, which was traumatic, you know, sort of psychically, financially, emotionally, the global financial crisis, you know, the great tech reset of 2022, kind of on and on. So being able to, as an investment firm, navigate through generally means you've made a few better decisions than a few worse decisions. And so here we are. But I will also say that we really try to take an emphasis around having exceptional people. This is very much a performance-oriented business. And you know, j- just like the great entrepreneurs are dramatically better than the good ones, so too are great investors. And you know, I think being able to also take that long-term view that we want to be with our companies through thick and thin seems a little maybe corny, but also has served us very well, I think, reputationally, that we're not fast money that comes in and comes out. We're very committed to growth and we're very committed to technology. You mentioned AI, and I know that's a theme for TCV. Are there certain aspects of AI that you really like and that you really focus on? Or is it kind of broadly speaking, you're looking at the whole AI universe as a whole? It is actually all all of the above. Let me see if I can try to succinctly summarize. We believe AI has the potential to be one of those monster waves in technology that reshapes, in a sense, everything across the landscape, similar to the internet did, as well as mobile. And then when cloud and SaaS came along, those were monster waves that created a lot of fortune from a company standpoint, and also you know, created some destruction in terms of then legacy purveyors. So the potential is enormous. I also hearken back to, it's not exactly clear how it's gonna play out. And there is an old saying that you know, we tend to overestimate the near-term opportunity in new ways of technology and then underestimate the long-term. So we are spending a lot of time understanding how we think it's gonna play out, meet all the companies. We've made a couple of, I call them kind of vertical oriented AI companies applying to very specific use cases, but we're not at the point where we think it is totally obvious what the major platform companies will be. Uh, And then I will also say, you know, maybe unlike 20 years ago, a number of the large tech companies are obviously quite active in this space. And so you just have to be aware of that from a competitive standpoint. So we find it super interesting. We're spending a ton of time. We have not deployed a massive amount of capital in the space. Again, as a growth investor, what we're really looking for is confidence that we are going to back the clear category leader or category leaders across a variety of uh, either horizontal applications or verticals. And you know, if you're an early stage venture investor, you might want to take a significant number of bets earlier in the hopes that one or two of them will pan out. Growth is a bit of a different game. And so we're trying to be as smart as we can and as prepared as we can. But again, we haven't deployed a lot of capital in that realm. Do you think it poses in some ways a, a cause for concern for you know, your traditional B2B enterprise 
software company, or do you think those folks are viewing it as an opportunity? You know, how do you think your kind of more traditional software companies are approaching AI? I think they're much more prepared than the generation of companies 20 years ago. And, you know, if you're running a large software company, I think part of the calculus is the risk of being late, the pain would be so high. So you would tend to want to forward invest. Obviously, there are some companies like, you know, Microsoft and OpenAI that are very active players in the arena. And I think it'll be like, many prior generations, some will make the transition well, so some will thrive, but while others may be imperiled by new entrants. Mm -hmm. I was looking at the companies you've been involved with and that you're currently involved with. It seems like the travel space is one that you have some affinity for. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe other technologies in the travel space? It's such a big market. Yeah, it is. I mean, if you think about what kind of verticals would lend themselves to an online presence? They tend to be one where there's a lot of information. The supply side can be really fragmented. And so there is tremendous value to bringing that, you know, simplifying it for the consumer and providing choice. So you don't have to worry about if you're a, in a vertical that has a single supplier, you're not going to have any leverage. So if you go Way back in ancient history, travel was one of the first categories to tip very materially to online. Even back in the early 2000s, half of airlines and hotel bookings were done online. So it was you know, quick to happen. And then that, what that has meant is there's been some very big companies built like Expedia, like Booking, and then a bunch of derivative plays over the years, newer opportunities like an Airbnb, which again is taking a, even more fragmented, like everybody's extra room or home and so massive choice for the consumer bringing that online and you know creating tremendous value additionally with some new use cases that it's not just about business travel in san francisco it might be you know somebody wants to live for a month work from home and and actually travel around the country in working remotely using airbnbs in each of those locations which is something that you wouldn't have thought of as 10 years ago you know travel is a big vertical it tipped online early it can be a frequent category of purchase for a consumer. So all, all those things continue to make it pretty interesting. Yeah, you know, Airbnb is such a fascinating story. I was recently listening to an interview of Brian Chesky's and, and just the origins of how those three individuals from RISD came together. And I'm curious to get your take on Brian Chesky and that team and what made them successful. You know, as you mentioned, who would bet on that? that? Like that someone would feel okay about having someone else like share their home. You know, I think conventional wisdom initially, if you listen to Brian in the early days, a lot of people just thought it was a harebrained idea. And obviously he and the team proved them wrong. You know, I think he's just such an extraordinary entrepreneur who was very intent upon building something really big. And again, building something small is not obviously bad. Lots of ways that people can make a living, but it is pretty different if you're taking really big swings to try to build something really big. And I think Brian always had the long-term in mind. And if you think about the last four years, he had to be extraordinarily adroit. COVID hit February, 2020. You know, the thought was travel ceased. If you think about an investment memo, I can't imagine that was ever in anybody's investment memo. Well, one of the risks is, the world will stop traveling. Mm -hmm. 
And you know, I think he made some very hard decisions from a cost standpoint, but the silver lining of those very tough decisions is as travel resumed, it not only shifted to the Airbnb type of stay, but the business by virtue of that became you know, extraordinarily profitable and generated a lot of cash. And the other thing I would say by kind of keeping that pretty singular focus and not getting distracted and going to other adjacencies, the large online players have some alternative accommodation play, but you know, Airbnb represents something different from a brand standpoint. This is what they do. Enormous amount of listings, enormous amount of organic consumer traffic. And so I think they've you know, they built some pretty strong competitive moats, which is something that great entrepreneurs do as well. I noticed you're invested in Strava, and that's a really unique app as well. I'm always curious. I mean, I'm on it sporadically, but I do get the alerts from it every now and again. It's fun to see what my friends are doing. How is that kind of tracking overall? No pun intended. Yeah, no pun intended. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, Strava is also a, you know, a great business in addition to hopefully doing good things in the world by helping people you know, become more fit. The huge value is actually in the community aspect of Strava. It's just central to the way many people live their lives. I think additionally, you know, Strava is moving from, I'll call it, you know, intense series about fitness athletes to a broader use case because you it really can be for any kind of exercise modality, including walking, et cetera. It's a global business, which initially not a lot of Silicon Valley companies are. So, we're, you know, they have a bright future ahead. Do you think there's some aspect about the community that kind of could become more of a trend just in, you know, in terms of trying to get folks to either in person or, you know, have a more tangible community experience online, but that overall theme of community, do you think that's going to be something that's more pronounced in the years ahead? Do you mean for Strava or for companies more broadly? Yeah, more broadly. I think companies that have a fervent community is something that it's really hard to place an economic value on precisely, but it is of enormous value, both to their consumers, but also from a company standpoint. It's really hard to build communities, but once you have them, I think it can be a tremendous competitive moat and tends to lead to much higher NPS scores, consumer satisfaction scores. So I do think, you know, just as you think also about generationally as Mobile is such a, the, the usage is just enormous with each younger generation that a lot of sense of community is, is now virtual, mm -hmm. not physical. Mm -hmm. Well, we're coming up on time. I have two questions I'd like to end with. One is, can you tell us about a person who has had a big influence on you? One of the things I actually have on my desk from my Midwestern childhood heritage is the Pyramid of Success, uh, John Wooden. In the old days, very famous player and basketball coach, and he has a lot of just fundamental tenets about how one should live their life. So I only got to meet him once. I shook his hand in a hotel lobby, but I'd say indirectly, he's had a huge influence on my life. Excellent. Last question. Can you tell us about a charity cause or other endeavor that you are passionate about? Yes. My wife and I, and she's leading the charge, are very passionate about trying to find a cure for Alzheimer's. She lost both of her parents to it. It's a horrible disease that not only impacts people, but impacts the family and the caregivers dramatically. And so she started an effort called Part the Cloud that we are 
very passionate about that is funding fundamental research in Alzheimer's, trying to get as many shots on goal as possible so that we can find a cure, which is uh, starting to get some progress on, but it had been decades without any hope. Right. Well, Jay, want to thank you again for taking the time. I know our audience will find this very insightful. Great. I appreciate it. Thank you, RJ. 